the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. As we introduce our guest tonight, I am reminded of many of the weddings, certainly down through the years that I have attended, where generally after a few glowing words that are spoken by a minister in attendance, uh, there's an exchange of vows, and, and much of this seems to focus on largely the notion that they're going to live happily ever after they are completed in each other, uh, that there is uh, just a wonderful thing that happens when two people come and, and play their love in marriage. And then, of course, reality sets in. And I, and I say that somewhat with tongue planted in cheek, but yet I think a lot of us have some pretty big distortions about what marriage is, what the roles are between the spouses, and uh, what the expectations ought to be. And boy, especially in this arena of expectations, uh, oftentimes people are in for a very rude, rude, rude awakening. And of course, uh, the evidence of that is the divorce rate in America today. Well, Dr. Chris Thurman has taken the time to dig down into many of these myths concerning marriage and outright says, look, uh, you need to rethink your approach. You need to go into this by being transformed by the truth if you're going to have a hope of a successful marriage relationship. Dr. Thurman, as we mentioned, is an author. He is also a Christian psychologist. He's conducted hundreds of personal growth seminars addressing uh, topics including marriage. And his new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. And Dr. Thurman, good to have you with us on the program. Craig, thank you so much for having me. Boy, this is a, an experience in life where, amazingly, a lot of married couples go into this thing with eyes wide closed, don't they? Well, unfortunately, we do. We walk down the aisle, and uh, we think we might have a pretty good handle on what we're getting into, but uh, God certainly uses the marital relationship to um, challenge us and to get us to uh, see more clearly what marriage is all about and how he's trying to use it to help us to mature. This this image first out the gate, and it largely seems to be uh, kind of the thing of which uh, fairy tales are made of as opposed to uh, most realistic and long-term marriages, and that is this notion that we're going to live happily ever after, that once we say I do and the ring exchange has taken place, that it, it's only the rare couple or the people that don't work hard enough that end up getting into trouble. But most don't most couples, when they go into this, really think that, that they've got all they need to be successful? I think they do, Craig. I think that's a common assumption that people make. Um, 
and I do think that we buy into kind of the Hollywood notion that um, it will be happily ever after. And uh, as you said earlier, the reality of marriage being difficult and people being fallen and hurtful at times uh, begins to set in, and then we're not so happy, and we begin to question if we're not careful having gotten married, and we begin to think about other options and uh, think that happiness might be somewhere else out there for us. Hmm. Failed or incomplete expectations. That that seems to kind of be one of the most glaring, if we had to look for uh, maybe an overall overreaching, overarching phrase about where people run into so much trouble, doesn't it? That their expectations for what marriage is about, their expectations about how they're going to relate to their spouse, how their spouse will relate to them is oftentimes one of the big danger areas, isn't it? I think it is. I think we do, uh, even if it's unconsciously, I think we go into marriage with these uh, fairly lofty expectations and that uh, oftentimes are not all that grounded in reality as to what a person can bring to us, what we can bring to them. And so expectations can be a real killer in a marriage and lead people to be bitter and resentful when those expectations are not lived up to. Let, let's reset a few. Early on in the book, and, and when I read your new book, The Lies Couples Believe, I thought, boy, um, <laughs> wouldn't this upset a lot of brides who are busy uh, writing their marriage vows uh, to read the book and, and specifically your chapter on uh, how the spouse will complete me or will meet all of my needs. I, I've been to many weddings where the vows that are exchanged and lovingly you even see this take Take place during the reception when they're toasting each other or cutting the cake. How that my husband so and so, my wife so and so, she completes me, and that flowery language sounds lovey dovey, but it falls short of a major reality, doesn't it, Doctor? It does. Um, you know, the reality of every human being is that we're finite, and uh, we can't possibly meet the total package of needs that another human being has. But again, we buy into the idea that if we have found the right person, they're going to be capable of completely meeting every need that we have. And uh, what I try to discuss in that chapter is God has a wide variety of healthy, appropriate ways to meet your total package of needs and that we need to be careful not to drop all of our needs on our spouse's doorstep. And that's pretty uh, pretty unrealistic, too, isn't it? I mean, in terms of the enormous amount of pressure that it puts on an individual. I mean, think certainly from a Christian perspective, uh, we ought to be thinking about God as the one uh, who is most completely and fully capable of meeting all of our needs. To put that kind of pressure on a spouse, to have that level of expectation, I mean, it, it would seem to me that you're, you're setting yourself up for disappointment because, let's face it, we all make mistakes. We're all frail. We're all human. We are still all struggling with sin. Well, we are. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think God is bothered that we put that pressure on him because he's omni. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere at once. So he's not intimidated by us turning to him for our needs to be met. And, and I think he, uh, my own understanding is that he wants us to be incredibly careful about not putting that kind of pressure on a spouse, 
or a best friend or anyone else down here on earth. We're talking about this matter of being transformed by truth in marriage relationships with Dr. Chris Thurman. The new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, and I find it interesting because we get into early chapters in the book that talk about the misnomer of happily ever after or how that my spouse will complete me or meet all of my needs, and it's very evident that those two misconceptions alone sets the marriage off the rails pretty quickly that the balance of the chapters in the book deal with now the sudden attempt at compensation when things are not going idealistically. And, of course, we find out that there's an awful lot of lies that we believe in that attempt to try and compensate or reason our way through why things aren't going as idealistically as we thought they would or should. We'll talk about that further as our discussion continues. Dr. Chris Thurman, our guest, he is the author of The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. Craig Roberts along with Dr. Chris Thurman. His new book, The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. Let's talk a bit about um, how this goes off the rails pretty quickly, Doctor. And you dive into this fairly early on in the book. One of the one of the lies that is oft repeated, and I think it's our, sort of our attempt to try and, and, and mentally uh, justify the early cracks that we see in the fuselage so to speak, in our marriage. And that is this notion that, well, yeah, there's some difficulties here, but my spouse is really the bigger problem. You know, Craig, I think that's very common for people to um, think that way. Uh, It is my spouse who's got more issues. They are the more troubled person. They have the bigger plank in their eye than I do in mine. And that kind of uh, mindset obviously is pretty hurtful to the person that you're married to. Uh, It's pretty, uh, for lack of a better word, it's pretty arrogant for us to think that uh, we are not equally as big of a mess as a human being. And um, it's just sad that we would ever, you know, have that attitude and uh, not have a more humble attitude of, you know, I've got my issues. Uh, I am just as much a co-creator of our marital health or sickness, and I need to be uh, humble about that when I'm interacting with my spouse. You know, oftentimes that same distorted perception as to who the problem is also tends to be a means by which we sort of self-justify by saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, I'm making the effort. I'm doing all the hard work. Some spouses might say, well, I work all day long and I bring home the paycheck. Or the other spouse says, yeah, but I'm taking care of the kids and taking care of the house. And so as a result, I'm entitled to my spouse's love. Talk to us about that lie. Craig, the uh, the whole issue of entitlement uh, is especially toxic in marriage, um, and that's a tough uh, teaching to go into these days because I think, unfortunately, uh, we're almost raised to think that we are entitled. You know, we're entitled to the good life. We're entitled to be treated with respect. And when it comes to marriage, if we're not careful, we think we're entitled to our spouse being loving entitled to them being kind, entitled to them uh, carrying their fair share of the load. 
So what I'm after in that chapter is I want us to consider shifting away from an entitlement mindset to I would like my spouse to uh, love me. I would like my spouse to help me carry the load. More of a humble attitude of I want that from them. I'm not entitled to it, but I desire it. There's also this notion that we oftentimes um, will try to justify some of our own faults or failures by saying, well, you know, I am the way I am because uh, no, you know, no fault of my own. This was the way I was raised. I realize that I have simple or a certain uh, uh, failures or faults. But at the end of the day, my spouse just has to accept me the way I am. And of course, that usually is coupled with and but all of the defects that he or she has, I'm going to work toward changing them. They have to change, not me. Yes, I uh, in that chapter I mentioned the uh, cartoon Popeye because one of his more iconic lines was "I am who I am," and um, what I'm going into there is a lot of people have that attitude, and it's really kind of a smokescreen for I don't want you to push me to change. I don't want you to be on me about anything that I might need to polish off the rough edges of. So do we need acceptance from our spouse? Yes, of course we do. Are they supposed to accept us warts and all? Absolutely. But does that mean that we shouldn't be open to them saying, hey, I don't like this about you. Would you be willing to work on not being that way? I think a marriage that isn't an iron sharpening iron marriage is a no-growth marriage. So I'm very concerned whenever my couples that come to see me kind of wrap themselves in the accept me as I am flag and basically don't want to do any changing while they're married. Mm. Now, toward that end, there's also this notion that um, we would get along better if they would just think like me. This runs into cases, for example, in a marriage where there's a spender and a saver who have married. And we're saying, well, if my if my spouse, who's this major spender, would just become a saver like me, if they just act or think or be like me, that would fix all the problems. You know, I have to admit, uh, that's one of mine. Um, I'm not stereotyping military families, but I grew up in a military family. And uh, we were really told, you know, this is the way you clean things. This is the way you organize things. You need to wax it, shine it, windex it, salute it. And uh, this is the right way to do it. So when I married my wife, Holly, 35 years ago, I had a pretty uh, stubborn attitude about, you know, you need to be like me. I'm the one who knows how to do it right. And if you're not doing it the way I do it, then you're obviously wrong and you need to adjust. And uh, you can imagine how poorly that goes over with another human being who um, is more than free to be the person God made them to be and to have their own style and to not uh, apologize for that. Let's talk about some other issues here that really go to the core of dealing with bitterness and anger. And uh, it's interesting because this reminds me of the person as they're as they're suggesting that um, a spouse must, for example, the the other offending spouse must be the first one to forgive or has to earn forgiveness from the opposite spouse. That this oftentimes also becomes a place where we suddenly find ourselves not only trying to negotiate the, the topic of forgiveness with our spouse, but I would suspect it's like trying to negotiate the terms of forgiveness with God. I think so. And uh, that was one of the tougher chapters of the book to write because um, I think a lot of us do 
think that forgiveness has to be earned and that the other person has to repent of what they're doing before we will uh, bless them, if you will, with our forgiveness. And so in that chapter, I try to go into the idea that I think is biblically solid, which is forgiveness is commanded. Uh, God says forgive. And so we are not to wait on forgiving somebody. We are not to uh, make them jump through certain hoops before we forgive. Um, and uh, I think that's a hard thing for people to, to do, especially when the other person isn't sorry and they haven't stopped. So I try to distinguish between forgiving somebody and what it takes to reconcile with them, which is another chapter of the book. But and of course, ironically, as we talk about that in perspective of our relationship with God, you know, it, it, certainly He wants there to be reconciliation. God wants to be reconciled unto His creation, wants to walk in fellowship and relationship with His creation. But we also have to recognize that on God's terms, it requires repentance. Yes, and that's a, a distinction that a lot of people also uh, are a little bit slow to get to. Uh, I try to use the uh, prodigal son story to drive home the issue of forgiveness versus reconciliation. And so in that story, as far as I can tell, the forgiveness had already been granted, if you will, by the father to his son before he returned from the foreign land. So forgiveness was already achieved, but the reconciliation couldn't take place until the son came out of the foreign land. So with my couples, I push them pretty hard on, hey, guys, you're kidding yourself. If you think you guys can reconcile, if neither of you are repentant of what you've been doing wrong that's been hurtful to the other person. The new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. And the book, by the way, is newly published by David C. Cook and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and also through Dr. Thurman's website, Dr. Chris Thurman, Dr. Just abbreviated DR, DrChrisThurman.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you are a fan of many of the travel magazines that are out there or perhaps like to watch National Geographic as they take you into these faraway exotic places that are often filled with jungles and wild animals and so forth, you think, what a fascinating part of the world. But don't tell me that people really live there, do they? Oh, not only do they really live there, but in fact, some have adopted it as home. Joining me today in studio, no stranger to the KFAX microphones, he is the founder of Living Waters Village all the way from Borneo, and we're delighted to have Ronnie Habor with us once again. And Ronnie, welcome. Yeah, thank you, Craig. You are gracious to be with us. I'll mention for our listeners that you have just had a lengthy flight, literally halfway across the world. It was about a 15-hour trip, I, I guess. I think a bit more. I think it was 24 altogether. 24 yeah. hours. And then, with the sleep deprivation, we invite you into our studios to tell your story. But uh, we're delighted that you're here. And, and you. great to see you again. And, and wonderful to have the opportunity for you to share with our listeners what God is doing in this part of the world in Indonesia. These are stories that we watch on travel magazines, and we are fascinated by the people, people, by the people, the culture, what these islands look like. But to imagine somebody who travels from a very developed part of the world, Australia, and says, God is calling me and my family to go to what many would consider to be the uttermost parts of the earth and go and plant a ministry there for children minister to them, rescue them, educate them. 
bring them into an environment where they can hear the good news. This is really literally what you have been doing for 20-something years now. Yeah, 21 years, yeah. How did God first open that door? How did God take the young man originally from the Netherlands and transplanted into Australia all the way down to Borneo with a wife and children and decide, this is where, son, I want you planted to share my good news? Well, that's a long story, but I'll condense it as quick as possible. Um, I'm actually an Australian, but when I was eight, I went to Holland. My parents are Dutch, and then they decided to go to Holland when I was eight years old, so we did. I was educated there, spent there 10 years, didn't like it there, never liked it there. A lot of things, horrible things happened there, but I always dreamt of going back to Australia, which I did when I was 18. I went back by myself. There, eventually, a couple of years later in Australia, I got, um, I got married and uh, with a Dutch lady, so that was, that was good. There were some good things in Holland after all. And uh, then I... Um, um, got saved. Uh, that's a long story as well, but God got a hold of me. And when God got a hold of me, I realized that there was a purpose in my life that I didn't think there was before. And so this uh, gap was filled in my life, and I was absolutely radically changed as a result of God coming into my life, allowing Him to saturate me and to wanting to use me. And I, I realized that God had a purpose and a plan for my life. And um, it was just so awesome. I just wanted to tell the whole world. And so I knew that. Uh, I wasn't just meant to be uh, staying in Australia, working in a factory, um, helping out with the church there, but God had bigger plans. I didn't know what, where, how, when. I didn't know that, but I just knew that that God wanted us to prepare ourselves for whatever he had for us. So um, uh, I lost my first wife in a car accident, and then after that I married again, and then both of us really felt that... um, we need to give up everything and we need to we definitely God called us to give up everything and to just follow him and so we really didn't know um, where to go he, he called us to go to Borneo but it wasn't clear really uh, he didn't write it all out on a piece of paper for us all the things that were going to happen I think if he would have done that we probably would have run the other way like Jonah and would have said <laughs> you know call somebody else but that's not us but just as well I mean God God knows um, your level of faith and uh, he's, he's there to stretch your faith uh, it, it does require of us to be obedient to the Lord and everything so, and to be serious with God it is not just uh, yes I believe in God and that's it and then you just go and do your own thing but here hey God here I am uh, I want to serve you my life is yours you bought it with an expensive price so I want to really do your will while I'm here and um, I realized that my first wife, she was 31 when she died in a car accident. And I thought, you know, she didn't know when she was going to die that day. And uh, I thought, I don't know when I'm going to die. I might have a week to live, a month to live, 10 years, 50 years, whatever it is. It's still only a short speck, you know, compared to eternity. And so, but I want to make a difference. I want to I want to really serve God. I don't want to run after money. I don't want to run after position or power or anything like that. I just want to please my God, I want to be obedient to him. And so both of us, we decided that that's what we want, and then God opened the door for us in Borneo. Now, I'm curious about that, because, of course, close proximity to all of that wonderful, amazing chain of islands, I think 17,000 all told, within Indonesia stretching through that part of the world. But Borneo, I mean, some people would say, well, you're there in Australia, why not be called by God to Perth or Sydney or Melbourne? Well, well, a lot of of people go to the Sunshine Coast, it's paradise of Australia, you know, they all get called there. That's it, it's like here, you go to Hawaii, God's called me to the missions field. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
look, uh, if you say, God, here I am, use me however which way, then you need to be prepared for that. So that's what we said. (coughs) Excuse me. And uh, so we then... um, when Borneo opened up, we said, okay, God, well, I, I don't even know where Borneo is really, but uh, whatever you say. And so w- we then did a reconnaissance a trip over there with a friend of mine, and I went there for my friend, not for me really, but for my friend who had a real burden to go to one of the other islands of Indonesia. But God said in our all-night prayer meeting one day, a couple of weeks before we left, I want you to go to Borneo and visit this these people there. So we ended up going there, and when I arrived there, got off the flight there in Pontianak, my heart started to race like like anything, and it was as if I came home. I had the same feeling when I came back from Holland, coming back to Australia, uh, dreaming of this moment for 10 years, being back in my own country, and my heart started to race, and I felt really like I'm home again. Mm. I had the same experience when I came to Pontianak, and I said to God, I'm not here for me, I'm here for him, I'm here for my friend. But it became clear that God was telling me, well, you've been asking... You know, where do you want me to come to? I said, well, God said, this is where I want you to come, you and Kay to come. So I kept it to myself until I got back home. And then I said to my wife, I really believe that God is saying that we we had to pack our bags and to go to Borneo. And she goes, great, when are we going? Wow. So she was she was ready. She knew that. Well, what about your children now? You, you had, were they teenagers at the time? Uh, I, my daughter was 18. My son, uh, Paul, was 11. And our youngest at that time, Nathaniel, was one. Now, that's that's kind of startling news to deliver to the family. I mean, it's one yeah. thing to say, well, Dad and Mom are heading off to Borneo here. And where? <laughs> but you're coming with us. Um, how did the children first react to that? Uh, well, they already knew that any day, any moment, God could call us wherever, to Russia, China, who knows where. So they already knew that that was coming one day. Uh, our daughter didn't. She was 18, and she decided that she wasn't going to go. And she had her own life there in Australia, so she was continued to study there. So we'd have to behind, which was a real difficult decision to make. But sure. But uh, we felt that God was in control and he was looking after her, so that was okay. Paul was 11, and it was a very difficult time for him because he had to leave his school and friends behind. Um, in one sense, he wanted the adventure, you know, going to somewhere unknown and, hey, this will be cool. The other, On the other side of the coin, he didn't want to leave his friends and his, his known world. And you're, you're going to a place where the culture is different, different. the language is different, the surroundings are different, there's there's nothing or very little I would imagine there in Borneo that seemed to at all be a reminder of what life must have been like back home in Australia it was very very different and uh, for the first year of course then you realize how incredibly different you are and uh, with my son in particular who was 11, 12 years old 11 when we went there but I remember one day we were in a with the tribal people the tribal people there are the Dayaks and they're, they're um, animists so they believe in all sorts of spirits and all sorts of things and uh, we were at this um, uh, longhouse where from the Iban tribe and um, they had a celebration they just opened up this new longhouse that they built because their previous one had burned down and it, it's a whole community lives in one house one longhouse so you have 30 to 50 families living in the one house it, unfortunately if somebody cooks their meal in their little section of the the building and it get, gets on fire the whole the, you know the whole village actually loses their accommodation and so um, but this is what happened they built a new one and they came and asked us whether we would come and and bless the the new building so we did and my son was there and we were sitting opposite the tribal chief 
and he kept on staring at my son. He was a good-looking guy, good-looking kid, and uh, he had this chain around his neck of, with a shark tooth on it. And the tribal chief kept on staring at my son, and he said eventually, he says to me in, uh, in his language, he said, how much do you want for him for that? And he pointed to my son, but I thought he was pointing to his necklace. No, he meant, how much do you want to sell <laughs> well, your well, son? Well, I, I thought he was pointing to his necklace. So I yeah. said, oh, that's his. That, uh, you'll have to ask him, you know. I don't know whether he wants to sell it. He goes, you're the father? I said, yes. He said, well, how much do you want for him? I said, for my son. He said, yes, I want to buy your son. I said, you want to buy my son? And so my son then realized something was going on. He couldn't understand the language. He said, what is he saying, Dad? I said, hang on a minute. He wants to buy you. Just wait a minute. <laughs> so he grabbed a hold of my arm and he goes, Dad, don't say anything foolish yet. I said, just hang on a minute. We're negotiating here. Yeah. So, you know, joking a little bit. Um, but at the same time, I realized this, this, eventually I realized this is quite serious because I said to him, why do you want to buy my son? He said, for my daughter in marriage. I said, he's 12 years old. He said, yes. My daughter is 12 years old as well, or 13. And he said, that would be a good match. And I said, ah, he's not for sale. He said, why not? I said, well, he's not for sale. And then I, I thought, then I realized, oh, gosh, I need to watch out what I say here because any moment you can, you know, by nodding the wrong way or saying the wrong thing or doing another expression or something, a deal has been made. So, and I thought, my goodness, how different our cultures are, you know. Mm -hmm. We just would never think of something like that, but... Uh, I still tease my son with that sometimes, as you know, years after I say, misbehave, yep. I still, I still the can make a deal. still out there. <laughs> <laughs> if you've just joined us today in studio with us is Ronnie Habor. He is the founder of Living Waters Village. By the way, you can find out more about this amazing ministry, yes, indeed, right in the heart of Borneo, by going online to livingwatersvillage.org. That's livingwatersvillage.org. The story of the Miracle Zone in the jungles of Borneo is the title of Ronnie's book, Co-author with a very dear friend of ours, Pastor Don Sheely from Church of the Highlands. And if you want to get information about the book, you can check it out again online at livingwatersvillage.com. That's livingwatersvillage.com. We'll take a brief time out and come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation. With us today in studio, a very special guest from a very special part of the world. Ronnie Habor is with us. He is the co-author of a new book called Miracle Zone in the Jungles of Borneo, co-authored with Church of the Highlands' own Pastor Don Sheely. By the way, you can hear Pastor Don weekday mornings at 6.30 a.m. for daybreak right here on KFAX. Ronnie Habor, founder of Living Waters Village, sharing this amazing story of, of traveling literally from Australia to the jungles of Borneo simply because God said, go. And, and as you went, Ronnie, I'm curious, was there any particular agenda in mind? In other words, some people say, okay, we have a, a vision here to uh, plant a church or we're going to build a medical facility, things of this sort. What, what is it that God had put in your mind or had he even crystallized any specific thoughts in terms of what exactly now you know to where you've been called? Did you understand how or why? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, God did sort of show us that we would, I mean, these people need salvation. So um, obviously it's bringing the gospel message to them sure. somehow, some way, and then plant churches there and whatever. So that, with that in mind, we sort of left there and we, and we started there already straight away when we, we, we come to Kuching on the Malaysian side of Borneo and started there first and then worked in the Malaysian side of, of Borneo plus uh, traveling over the border into the Indonesian side of Borneo. And... Um, 
uh, the, the people groups are the same. There's 400 different tribal groups belonging to the Dayaks, and they all have their own culture, their own language, and um, some, are more, some are more primitive than others. Some are already quite civilized. They live around the coastal areas, but a lot of them in the interior are still quite primitive, and still even today they're still quite remote and primitive. Now, I'm curious, across that arc within the Dayak population, though, are they all predominantly all animists? The, the Dayaks are predominantly animists. I mean, there are some that have become Muslim, some have become Christian, some are Catholic, but um, the majority are animistic, yeah. And so um, uh, it, it, it was, uh, we believe that it was our task to sort of, you know, start planting churches, which we did in the beginning. But then as we started to see um, all the misery that was going on, particularly on the Indonesian side, because the, the Malaysian side, they were fairly well looked after by the government in many ways. And the Indonesian side was a different story altogether. The further that you went into the, the remote areas, the more misery that, you, that we experienced there. And uh, the more difficult it was often to bring the gospel to them uh, because of all the poverty that you saw there. But um, at the same time, God sort of challenged us there to do something about it. Because I just, I just wanted, to, I just kept on saying, God, this just doesn't make sense. We're trying to, you know, bring, a, bring the gospel to these people, bring Jesus to these people, bring you to them. But how this, this poverty seems so huge, so fast. How can we change this? And uh, so we started to see all these kids that were neglected and nobody wanted, especially orphans. Uh, they were neglected because if families can't look after their own kids, they haven't got enough food to look after their own children, then even more so for the, for the orphans in their, in their villages, they're sort of uh, dis- disregarded and left on their own. They're literally just abandoned, yeah. and they fend for themselves. Yeah. I mean, we hear terms like street kids here in America. These kids are literally just sort yeah. of sent off and wish you luck, and yeah. they're on their own to do as best as they can. Yeah. So, And they're, of course, sometimes they, they can survive, uh, especially if they're strong. But when they're, if they're weak and already sick and all that, then they won't survive. You see, over there in the, in the jungles, you'd think there'd be enough food there everywhere. You'd think that the, the trees, they produce enough fruits and, and roots and all that sort of stuff. But the thing is, sometimes there is no fruit at all for a whole year. Sometimes they have two crops or three crops a year, and sometimes they have nothing for a whole year. And so when, when the families of these tribes... Uh, they use their seeds for, for growing rice the next year. They use that up because they're hungry. Then the, they know that the next year they're going to starve. And so that's when you'll see a lot of children will actually die of starvation and will be um, abandoned and uh, you see some dreadful situations, particularly like uh, girls when they're 11, 12 years old and get their first period. They're married off to these old ghastly guys who want another wife. So the witch doctor then marries them off, makes a deal with these guys uh, in exchange for a couple of pigs, the parents will get a couple of pigs for their daughter, and their daughters are married off. And you see these little girls pregnant already straight away, and by the time they're 20, they've already had four, five, six kids. Half of them are dead from neglect, and the other half are neglected, you know, because they have no concept of love that's gone out the window already a couple of generations. So all these kids that we get now in our place, many of them have no concept of love at all. No, you're really coming to a scenario where it seems as if when we talk about... <clears throat> 
traveling to anywhere to share the good news of the gospel. And of course, at the at the very core of that is enveloped by this tremendous way in which God has demonstrated his love toward us, his willingness to look past our sin, to ultimately sacrifice his only son so that we might walk in fellowship with him, have our sins be forgiven, um, have that sense of connectivity between creator and creation. And so at, at the core of the message of the gospel is this profound love Absolutely. that God has shown toward us. And yet you come into this scenario as you're describing, Ronnie, and you think, you know, we're here trying to present this this other spirit, in a sense, since this is the animist viewpoint is that there's spirits that reside in everything. The tree has a spirit, the, the rock has a spirit, etc. You're tr- coming to, to, to describe to and share with the Dayak people this other spirit who is at the core a loving spirit. Yeah. And yet, you look at the depravity and the circumstances in which they're living and the kind of suffering, particularly amongst these kids, it seems to me as if you're really compelled to have to do something to address these these immediate felt needs. I mean, you see a kid starving and say, well, wait, before you die, let me tell you about Jesus. What? Yeah. And that would mean totally nothing to them. I mean, if you would just say to a dying kid who's starving, uh, look, uh, Jesus loves you, and I love you too, and uh, let me pray for you right now. Uh, I don't think you... I don't no, know for sure you're talking register, about yeah, one iota about what you're just saying. But if you if you take that kid in and you, you care for that child and you, you love that child as if he was your own... Uh, then uh, very quickly that child will know uh, who Jesus is uh, after you share that with you. You and your wife, Kay, began doing just that. Yeah. And and some might say now, 20 years later, it kind of grew out of hand. <laughs> uh, this Living Waters Village has absolutely taken off. And it went from maybe a, a small size, let's have a vision that we can handle here, to a vision that I would imagine has gone absolutely beyond anything you could have ever dreamt or thought of in those early days. Well, again, it was just God showing us that God doesn't give you the whole full story yet because he knows where you're at with your faith. That's why I said I would have run away like like Jonah did. But the thing is, um, he gives you just enough to be able to handle and to stretch your faith a little bit more. So it was a process that God took through us, with us, that, that hey, do I really believe that God is God, who, who says he is and that he can do anything? You know, a lot of people believe in God, but they I, I come across so many Christians today that don't believe really that God can do anything anymore. He can do some things, but there are limits. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas that's not the case. If God created the heavens and the earth and he cre- created mankind and we're so complex put together, he can create anything. He can do anything. Now, God rescued my two children when they were in a car accident with my first wife miraculously. And I knew from that day, if God can do this... You know, against all odds, I mean, even the neurologist said to me, it's absolutely impossible that your children could survive this. And yet they survived and they pulled through and they're healed completely. That if God can do that, he can do anything. And so God was already working in our lives, showing us that, hey, you know, um, I can do anything. But do you believe that? And do you, and, you know, and not just believe it. How do I know that you be, that that your faith is your is real? Is by testing you on your faith. So then you require to step out in your faith as well, and and do the things that God has asked you to do. So do I really believe then? When when the Lord told us a number of years later, when we already had a number of kids in our house, look, I want you now to prepare a place for a thousand neglected children and build schools for two thousand. Now we didn't have a cent to do that. And we didn't have the resources to do that, the people to do that. But I just knew that when God said, do that, you just, we just have to start doing it. It, it. it occurs to me, Ronnie, that this is not just then simply a matter of, of having the kind of belief that God is capable of doing these things. 
But then this concept of surrender really needs to enter in too, doesn't it? Absolutely. Surrender in the sense that, okay, we know that God can do it, but are we willing to turn over everything to him to allow him to do it, take my control, my ideas out of the picture, so to speak, and just say, okay, God, Absolutely. we're surrendering to you. Yes. Wow. That's, I mean, that, that, that takes your faith to a whole different level, doesn't it? When, when the Lord told us in Australia, and we... Kay and I were pretty well off. We we had we were well set. We had plenty of money. We had our own house paid off. We had no debt. So we're quite young still. Uh, I was only thirty two, and we had all this, all this stuff. We were, we had good jobs, good paid jobs, uh, good uh, church, uh, family there, and all that. And then God told us to pack up, sell up, and follow Him. And so we did. And so now I always say to people, you know, I then I had all this money and I had all this stuff you know that I could um, just grab a hold of I said but now I've got nothing I don't have a house or land or anything a pension a retirement fund or nothing I said but I'm richer today than I've ever been in my life why because I think I, I believe that we've learned to surrender it over to God if God says you know I, I want you to trust in me I want you to I want you to do this this is what you've asked me well I'm giving you this task now it's up to you whether you will whether you'll be successful in this. It's not up to God. God is already there, and He's already there ready to bless you. This is why I always say, you know, many, many Christians don't realize that their obedience to God will actually save and bless many other people. And if we don't obey God once He's asked us to do something, then actually a lot of people are going to miss out Mm. because of our disobedience. That's a scary prospect. That's a scary thing. See, all of us are going to stand before the throne of God one day and we're all going to have to give an account. And what are we going to say to the Lord? I don't want to be in that position where he's going to be so disappointed with me because I didn't do what he asked me to do. You know, like I said, we're only here for a small, short moment in this planet, in this in this life. You know, and so, but what are we going to do with it? And as a Christian, isn't that, isn't that correct? When, when we've asked Jesus to come into our lives, that we've actually surrendered everything over to him, not just the things that we want to surrender, but everything. So my, my life, my time, my resources, my family, my everything to him. And then, and then I should, so I'm here then for his business. God's business is people, people that are saved, people that are lost, mankind. And I want to make sure that, you know, I, I don't want to, um, people around the world to say, oh, Ronnie, well done, you know, you, 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 you've started this off, you've been obedient to the Lord, rah, rah, rah. I want people to come to know Christ. And these kids now are coming to know Christ. I've got kids now that are in Bible college, 25 of them are now in Bible college. They want to be pastors and church planters. Wow. I've got 34 in universities around Indonesia. They're our teachers. We at school, uh, just saying to Pastor Tony, we're starting up with our uh, senior high school this year, uh, which is a major step of faith. But um, again, every year we see miracle after miracle happen by just stepping out of faith, trusting in God for everything, and God comes through every time. And also all our teachers, all 37 that we have at our school now, are all our own kids that have come through the ranks, and we've sent them off to university for comeback, and now are helping out with the next generation. So I, I think that's awesome to see God working in these lives. And that's what it's all about, is to rescue Mankind rescuing those that desperately need Christ, and that's everywhere. That's the whole world. I mean, the people, the, there are unsaved people all over the world, and that's why we need. If we don't do that, if we don't obey God, you know, who else is going to do it? Didn't He ask us to do it? 
So, Absolutely. We, we so. are to be the conduit through yeah. which his spirit flows and works and, and, and moves amongst people to, to impact lives with the good news of the but gospel. Too, too, too much today, I think we sort of look at what are my rights and what are, you know... What God? What can God do for me? That's I mean, right. it's not enough to say that He saved you. And now it's like, okay, let's uh, let's regard God as our big cosmic bellhop and see what He can go do for us. We're going to pause on that point. Come back to more of our conversation with Ronnie Habor of Living Waters Village. More information, by the way, on the web at livingwatersvillage.com. That's livingwatersvillage.com. The book is called Miracle Zone in the Jungles of Borneo, written by Ronnie Habor and co-authored by Don Sheely, Pastor Don from Church of the Highlands in San Bruno. A brief time out back with more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 